Welcome to the How Humans Work podcast. I am your host, Jeff Z. So glad to have you with us today. We are now in season three, looking at the nature of stress. We're going to dive into this ancient system and the way it works and plays out in our lives and talk with some truly amazing people who have knowledge and insights to help us find our way through the dance of life and the dance of stress that will have heart and truth and love in them. It's going to be amazing, I promise. Let's do this. Enjoy. Here we go. All right, listeners, in today's special episode, my guests are Juliet and Kelly Starrett from The Ready State. Very excited to share this conversation with you. Recently, I dropped into the Ready State podcast studio and had a conversation for the How Humans Work podcast on the occasion of their new book, Built to Move, which I'm highly recommending to all my friends, clients, and patients because I think it's so absolutely useful and fundamental to how we can make our lives richer. I love their stories. I love the conversations. As I was working through the show edits, everything they had to say kept sinking in at deeper and deeper levels. I trust that like me, you will find meaning and guidance in their teachings. Without further ado, please enjoy Juliet and Kelly Starrett from The Ready State and a conversation about their book, Built to Move. Thank you, Rick Rubin. I might have only done four. I forgot. <laughs> They're long. I, I lost did count. four, and I'm a slow breather, so I'm like, they are probably a five. I'm just going four. Yeah, but I was like, did I do four or five? <laughs> You'll appreciate this. I just was speaking at a big chiropractic conference, the Parker Chiropractic Conference. It's the biggest chiro conference in the world, and I, for some reason, have weaseled my way into the big stage over the few years. And I did a section on breathing an hour. This is kind of a, one of the three hours I presented, and... I started with a thousand people doing that drill. Nice. I stood on stage, I closed my eyes, and made everyone take five breaths, and you could hear a pin drop in there. And that was really trippy and powerful. And I was like, ooh, I'm gonna do this forever. Because it really centered everyone, and pulled everyone in, anchored them. And then I was like, and that's the least interesting aspect of breath, right? But it was really, uh, it was kind of strange and powerful to be up there in the center of that. Well, especially because you were on like one of those Beyonce stages too, where you were like in the middle of the crowd. My so. hair, my hair wasn't blowing. Yeah, but I could have requested that. There wasn't a wind machine, but other than that, <laughs> my rider it was next powerful. Time wind machine. Welcome to the How Humans Work podcast. It's nice to have you here. It's nice to have you back. It's great to be here on this occasion. Thank you for being here. It's great to be here at the Ready State in the studio, and it's also great to be celebrating your new book, Built to Move. Holy moly! I know. Thank you so much. Yeah, Thank I'm you. Pretty excited. How are you guys doing? with everything that's going on at this point? Good question. I mean, it's been busy. It's a lot. We're doing a lot of promotion and a lot of podcasts and interviews and stuff. Um, that's the least of what the work has been for the team and you. Yeah, there's, but I mean, there's all this behind the scenes stuff happening, right? To sort of get the word out and get the message out. And I would say the challenge is just that, as you know, in the internet sphere, it's crowded and people's attentions are slow or sorry, they're, they're limited. Um, so just sort of trying to get the message out that we've got this book we're pretty proud of out there and, you know, let people know why they should buy it. It's, it's not simple. I bet it's not simple, yeah. but one of the things I did appreciate was seeing your trailer and the humor you guys brought to it and, and the, the video that you made and the little story and the anecdote with the woman who was in the pattern of life in that pattern, that habitual pattern, screen, chair, low energy, and, and then showing what could be. And I thought that was very powerful and positive. And I've had a chance to look at an early copy of the book, and I just want to say for me, 
really from my heart how much I appreciate what you've put together. I'm not a joiner. I'm not someone who likes to do challenges or other people's programs. You're looking at number one non-joiner. Okay, yeah, great. Same with Kelly. I'm right Kelly's with the same. you. I, I just, I just. Oh, organized I, fun. I'm out. Yeah, exactly. When I looked at the book and I was really reading it, and I actually started working with the challenge already. I'm, I'm doing day one for consecutive days, just really exploring the movements of the vital signs and stuff. But I think you're both the voice, the connection you bring in the book, and the layout made for me. I feel really inspired towards like, oh, I can actually reclaim ancestral health behaviors more in my life than I've been thinking. Yeah. So I want to just say like, that's my response to what you've put together. A real genuine sense of like, oh, I want to participate. Oh, I think this is more accessible for me than I was thinking. So I guess that's a, a bit of praise, a bit of thank you, and a bit of just observation of, of what I'm seeing and what I'm feeling so far in the book. Well, I appreciate you saying that because I think the word accessibility was like so important to us as we wrote this book. Um, because I think, you know, knowing you for a long time and knowing that, you know, you've done some CrossFit and stuff you saw, you saw, or have maybe even read Supple Leopard. Um, and since you're a practitioner, it, it might've, you know, really spoken to you and you might've been able to follow it, but you know, it was missing some key pieces that, that, you know, we feel like we've since learned and also You're saying supple leopard, supple leopard, but also wasn't ultimately totally accessible to everybody. Um, and so, you know, I appreciate you saying that cause it really was one of our big goals in writing the book. As a provider, you're privy to how the sausage is made. And so, you know, when people come in with seemingly very complex problems, complex issues, there's no one magic bullet. It's how do we begin to get the system righted? How do we begin to get out of the way so the body can do what it needs to do? How do we facilitate healing and loss of pain and return to function? We've just had to read this book again out loud for the audiobook. And we've read it, I've, I've read the book cover to cover 10 times, not the writing, but the actual reading, just editing, et cetera. And, but we read it out loud, word, every single word, which is not something you do actually when you read, you speed read, but we read every single word. And what's really, I like that we nailed really sophisticated and complicated processes and we put them together in ways that are hidden from the reader potentially, where you don't have to understand what the complex physiology is and what your brain does. You just have to engage in these simple behaviors. Sometimes we talk about it like, an iPhone. Do you really need to know how the software works? You don't. You need to know how to turn it on. Yeah, and yeah. Press the press the open thing, an app. And, you know, and, <laughs> and that's that's what people don't know how to do, or they've gotten so confused and there's too many apps, and now we don't know how to sort of what the fun, core functionality is. But I appreciate you seeing that, and one of the, one of our voices or avatars certainly is a, for the provider, for a coach working with someone, because it's such, you have an hour potentially, maybe you get a little more because you're, you, you can, you know, your practice is set up differently, but there's a lot of information to parse through around helping people understand their agency and giving them control over their lives. And that sometimes most places aren't set up for that. We can't have the in-depth conversation. So I feel like this is one of those tools where you can say, hey, as we're working on these things, I want you to look at this book and start these practices because it's going to be a net positive and just an adjunct to everything we do in the clinic. It's where my wheels are already spinning in my head. I'm so excited for it to come out because I want to talk with my patients 
around mobility and ancestral health behaviors in a way that they can relate to. And I think yeah. you've done that. I think you've done that. So and we'll, give, yeah. we'll see. We'll, we'll see. see. Right? Yeah. Yeah. And I mean, you know, also we, one of our goals too was to give a resource to providers like you, you know, as you know, one of my best friends in the world also is an acupuncturist and um, traditional Chinese medicine doctor. And, you know, she and I talk a lot about how there's only so much she can do in the half an hour, hour that she has, and that she wants to provide resources to people to like take home and say, okay, yes, I can, you know, I can do a lot to improve your life and help you here on my table, but, but there also needs to be things you're doing at home. And I want, you know, we wanted to create a resource for providers like you to be able to say, okay, you know, see me for these things. And then when you're not with me on the table in my office, you know, do these things. <laughs> One of the things that I'll, I'll just go with my heart here that's really touched my heart that is the sense that we all have a movement story. We all have a story about how movements and the way we engage in life. Like I tend to think of my, my life as the things I've done, the jobs I've taken, the relationships I've had, my children, my wife, I love that. Uh, the places I've been. And I started looking at my life a little bit more of like how I've just been moving through the world, almost like from a bird, bird's eye view and reviewing that and kind of taking an inventory of that. Mm -hmm. And I was thinking about myself as, um, as a child in the different homes I lived in and when the National Forest was across the street and how the trees became a playground and the different changes that happened in my life and how that changed my how I lived in my body. And I, I wanted to invite both of you in your movement stories, because you both have a, a athletic background, but just like what were some key people or moments or places that changed your sense of movement or gave you a way in which you understood your body, your purpose, and just in your own movement story, if you use the metaphor? My mother was a single working parent. And in the first grade, I... Um, she finished her PhD and then whisked us off to Germany, she and I, a summer only child. And we lived in this little Bavarian town, a little hamlet in south of Munich in the mountains. So they had the 72 Winter Olympics there. It's a small dwarf. It's a village. And I think she originally was like, I need to get my son out of Seattle. Because at the time, my, we, I was, you know, a first, second grader. You're playing. You're engaged with the world. You know, we're doing, we're maniacs in the 70s. We're those kids, right? Just feral. And then simultaneously, I think, you know, my, my main sport was like soccer and, and uh, just kind of traditional, you know, sports. So I think she wanted to get us out. We had a big, there's a big expatriate community there. But moving to Europe at that time totally transformed how I interact in the environment. Because a lot of what we say when we talk about, uh, if you were talking about your movement story, it's really how the environment shapes you, consciously or unconsciously. But suddenly... I had a bike. I had the German forest. We had we skied. I mean, my ski. My team got out. My school got out at noon on Wednesday. Elementary school to ski. That was when in the winter. Um, we played all the sports. We ran and swam in all the rivers. We slept and camped in the local woods whenever we could, and it just changed the movement lexicon. It, it gave me a different language of expression. And the thing that I ended up valuing, I remember valuing as a kid, was the the person, the boy, the girl who could do the, everything the best was the kid that we looked to. Like we that kid, that, that kid. kid can ski and backflip and jump into a soccer game and ride bikes and, you know, and, and play all the sports. I mean, they were our most valuable. And so what we saw was that there, this specialist really wasn't valued in the way that our kids in our community valued the, the, 
the transferability of skills, the the depth and breadth of of capacity. And we ended up having a ski team and a kayak team, and you know, it just was really that changed me for sure. And then I remember riding my bike everywhere, and then coming back to Washington D.C. as a freshman in high school and being fully shocked, like someone had stripped out all the vowels out of the alphabet, <laughs> you know. And I rode my bike to school, and people were like, "What are you doing?" And I was like. What do you mean? Don't we, don't we all ride our bikes to school? And that was not traditionally done there. But, we, but I played football, <laughs> right? So it, I think I can think of that as definitely having left imprints and patterns on the way I live my life, where I went to school, the sports I did, all mm -hmm. that. You know, in my case, it's not totally dissimilar to Kelly in that I grew up in Boulder, Colorado, which you and I talked about since your daughter's now living in Colorado. But uh, my dad was a super outdoorsy guy. And in fact, I describe my own parents as like the original built to movers, especially my dad. My dad has just always been hiking and outside. And he actually was like the first person anyone knew who actually went to the gym and like lifted some weights. Like he was early on to sort of be like, hey, I should lift some weights if I want to be able to do all these other things I want to do. So, so I spent my childhood like fishing and skiing and backpacking and camping. And, you know, we didn't have money to do like fly anywhere vacations. So, you know, camping was like our thing as a family. That's what we did. And um, but I think I had this one particular moment um, where my dad, who was, uh, he's like a rocket science atmospheric physicist and was working at a place called N NCAR in Boulder at the time. And he and like seven of his ragtag scientist friends took my brother and I on an eight day San Juan river trip when I was seven years old. We actually were in canoes um, and, you know, we didn't have coolers. We were eating like cheese whiz on crackers. It was like totally ragtag this thing. Um, and I fell in love with being on the river on, in that moment in my life. Like I loved the pace. I loved the side hikes. I loved eating outside, sleeping outside. Like I just immediately gravitated towards it. I was like, this is my thing. Like, I love this. So it's no surprise that I went on to work as a river guide later on in my life and have spent so much time on rivers and was able to make a sort of professional thing out of it as well. So Kelly and I really share that, like our early sort of movement was all around outdoor sports and spending time outside. And so I think, you know, we've really carried that through in our whole lives. Like we've, you know, made sure that we've brought our kids up going on the river and spending time outside. There's a outside lot of dealing involved with that. Like you're cold, yeah. you're uncomfortable, you're hungry, there's uncertainty. You have to, you're sleeping on the ground, you're falling and crashing. I mean, there's just a sort of a, a, an innate durability that's built in or exposure potentially to that. Yeah. So for, yeah, I think for both of us, it was really sort of um, a connection between movement and being in like the real outdoors. I the remember mountains, on rivers. Going to a uh, ski camp in Austria with uh, in Solden with Andre Arnold, who was like the World Cup champion, and it was a ski racing camp. But every day you got up and you rode your bike before before camp, or we went for a hike, or there was we played indoor soccer, or we there was some kind of fitness testing, or and that was always part of it. And we never saw. I think. What, one of the things that we've seen as we've gotten more modern, and certainly the last 10 years, is the very formalization of movement. It's very clinical. You have to do these squats and do this thing. 
And, and it's also recursive. I do pull-ups so I can do more pull-ups so I can do more pull-ups. So maybe I look good on Instagram. It has no application to really anything that matters. I think we've lost that connection. There is a side of sports because we work in a lot of professional sports where training still is about the, the application of your body in the pool, in the actual event, doing the thing. But the rest of the world forgets that we used to train for something. And in that ski camp, it was we're training in a diverse way with lots of movements to um, you know, ski better. There was a test where you had to run and pick up a tennis ball off the ground. You had to turn around, sprint, and then you had to put it in a little tiny hoop that was just over your height. So you had to jump and stretch, and then it was just about who could solve that movement problem, who could get the most tennis what balls was this, from... this, in like 70s PE or something? <laughs> no, this is in this, the, <laughs> I think, uh, like in the 80s at the ski racing camp. Oh, I was like, you know, and, and like, like, But as a idea of just look at the movement selection, the choices, the range exposure, and all that was baked into the thing. I always say that I wish I'd had a little more formal movement training, a little more classic ballet, a little bit more of Olympic lifting, a little more gymnastics, just a little bit, because it would have made all of those things better. But, you know, I think what's interesting there is we're realizing that movement is a skill that needs to be practiced and is perishable, and it should have application in the world that you care about. And the only other thing I'd add is, and I don't mean to romanticize the seventies and eighties because there were also a lot of problems, um, being kids growing up at that time. However, I do think Kelly and I really are products of that. Like we both grew up in places where it was like be home at dark, complete freedom outside all the time. Like, you know, I'm obsessed with that meme. I, when my kids were little, I saw that meme the first time. It's like how to give your kids a 1970 summer, you know, where it's like you drink, you, you lock them out and they, if they want water, they need to drink from the hose. And, you know, we were <laughs> drinking like Tang in like a fully BPA plastic thing. And, but we were really feral, both of us, like in different places, but really like, you know, our parents often had no clue where we were and we were outside exploring in the woods and, you know, playing. And, you know, my brother and I used to have those, um, we used, there was this like super steep hill by our house, like a road. And we had those green machines. You remember those from the seventies, those like plastic sort of like motorcycle-y things that were low to the ground. I don't know if you ever had a green machine. Like a big wheel. Um, like a big wheel. Yeah, big wheel. That's what I was green going machine. Yeah. But I mean, we would wheel. literally like go down this hill near our house on the green machine, like completely sketchy. Like even now, if I go back to Boulder and I look at that hill, I'm like, I can't believe I green machine down <laughs> What did hill. you do for formal balance training? Yeah, yeah. And so we just were all over the place doing <laughs> sketchy stuff and you know, somehow we survived. Yeah. I mean, we were doing a lot of sketchy stuff and yeah. of course no one was wearing a helmet and you know, there were yeah. some things, but like we definitely were just able to like explore our bodies and test limits and be outside and be cold and yeah. hot and it was fun. It is fun. I, I just feel happy and I feel lifted even just listening to the conversations of those spaces and those times. It's, it's, uh, speaks volumes. And so then it comes back for coming back. To, I appreciate those stories, by the way. It's really is good to hear that. And I hear the seeds of the love story in there a little bit with the paddling exposures, um, which is also included in the book and is very sweet. But coming back to the book in relationship to something like the freedom to move and explore and be feral or wild in some way or have that kind of natural environments that call out all these beautiful movement skills the vision of the book is to help people, right? And to help people find some of that, what you would, I think, would call mobility. It's easy to separate out the physical needs of a person in their environment. 
it's easy to lose track of that because we're so tolerant and we're so durable and we're, we can buffer really horrific stressors and lack of movement and lack of sunshine and lack of motion for a long time. Then when the error signal comes or the thing that we're doing doesn't work or our brain has become sensitized and suddenly th views what we're doing as a threat, it's difficult for people to tug out what happened. Nothing changed. I just woke up. I just reached for the pillow. You know, all of a sudden my neck started hurting. Why, why is it I'm having all of these problems all of a sudden? And I think, you know, it's imagine it's, this is a terrible analogy, so I'll use it. You know, <laughs> I'm Thank a physical you. therapist and people show up and they've driven their tractor trailer down a blind alley with no room to turn around and the trailer's on fire and they're like, make it stop, right? And the first thing is like, okay, well, there's a lot going on here. We're gonna have to put out the fire, then we're gonna have to back you down this alley. And it's gonna take a second for the system to right itself and to find the right amount of inputs and consistent inputs so that you can now do what you wanna do with your body. And by the way, we can end up back here again, but what we found out working in professional sports, working at the highest levels of sports and performance in a laboratory setting, literally, is that, there are some aspects of your human nature. You need to move. You need to decongest your lymphatic system. That's non-negotiable. You have to move enough to accumulate enough non-exercise activity so you can actually fall asleep. There are some micronutrients you need to put on board. Fiber matters. And so suddenly when we start to look at those things in, in sort of as the whole, that's what we're trying to help people understand is what's the minimum? Because we understand that you may have kids. You may have a busy life. You may have injury and trauma and be caring for a sick parent. You're, you can't just run through the fields of Europe on your, on your lunch break. You know, this doesn't work anymore. Yeah. You, bike to, so you can't just bike to Switzerland you for can't, chocolate? You can't bike to Austria for chocolate. So, um, which is a true story. The idea, we did that all the time. The idea, though, is now where are we going to show people that they have control and agencies in their modern lives to be able to integrate essential behaviors that set us up for more capacity, for better stress management, for greater durability. I know this is your podcast asking us questions, but I mean, when Kelly gives that tractor analogy, does that, do you relate to that as a provider yourself? I mean, I have to think like some large percentage of the people who come to see you are in that exact state. Yes. And I, they expect in well, half an hour. I'll put myself. I'll put myself half, on that. Right. In a half an hour, that feral you're hiccups. Be like this, you're good. Right. Yeah, that was a whole learning process, and you probably, as a, a clinician or a practitioner, relate with that too. But coming out of school, and there's not at the time I left school, and I don't even think now acupuncture college is a really good internship structure where you get that kind of you're out on your own. So there was a lot of exposure to feeling really responsible for people's pain and discomfort, and not sure how to figure that out. And then the journey of starting to learn and learn and work with that and then starting to realize I'm not responsible yeah. <laughs> for the condition somebody comes in and if this doesn't work right away, well, that's just where this tradition is. Sometimes it does and it's amazing and sometimes it doesn't. Um, but I think part of coming back to the story, which I, which I definitely relate to, that, that experience of people being in an inflamed, difficult, painful state and that's not easy to work with. Um, but part of the story I would want the listener to hear is that there's certain ancestral things our bodies need so we don't end up in that place. And so there's been a kind of deprivation or a denial or a loss of contact with these fundamental 
exposures to inputs or environments which really help us stay limber, whole, complex, dynamic, alive, vital. And so I was when I started the show with you guys today, I was really thinking about how much I love the accessibility of what you're guiding people to with this book. That there are actually, and as you outlined, I don't know how you chose 10, if there was 10 or it was 12, you edited down seven. <laughs> I, I'm really kind of curious about that part. But you chose 10 to keep it you know, attainable, I assume, um, of what you're calling vital signs. So walk us through a little bit of this the substance of what you're doing here with these vital signs and how that can impact people's lives in a, a real tangible way. Well, I just want to start by making a side point because, you know, everybody's sort of obsessed with the blue zones um, and the blue zones for anyone who's listening who hasn't heard of it are these parts of, you know, these little pockets of the world where people live to be a hundred and, and, or more and, and also live well right? They're, they're often are able to live independently and keep moving and keep their mental acuity like well into very old age. I don't age. want that. Whatever. You know, who would want that? Um, <laughs> but I, I just thought of this when Kelly was talking about how we've like over formalized movement. Yeah. Um, in, in those communities, people aren't like getting in their car and driving to their local yoga class and, and, you know, going to a CrossFit class and, you know, they've, they're not doing those by and large, they're not doing formalized movement. They're just, they've figured out a way to set up their environment so that they are getting all the movement they need by just doing day-to-day activities. And in fact, that 96 year old woman from Okinawa wasn't keto. Yeah. And, and, and they're just, you know, they're eating a traditional diet, um, which universally across all blue zones includes protein and vegetables and fruits, like universally, regardless of how it's prepared, that's a universal consistency. And so, so I, I think that that was just kind of a, a point I wanted to make that everybody's obsessed with these things. And, and not that I don't think people should, I, I we're not suggesting that anyone give up their formal movement. I mean, you know, you and you know, as well as we do, like we love to exercise and train and lift weights and we love going to CrossFit classes and we're always open to experimenting. Like we're not suggesting people throw, throw any of that out, but also, um, one of the things we hope is that it just opens people, people's eyes to say, how can I set up my environment better so that I'm able to make a lot more movement choice and better eating choices and better sleeping choices throughout my day without having to like blow everything up. Like we have a chapter in there about all about balance. And I think everybody knows balance is critical. I think everybody maybe have have even heard the data that like, if you fall when you're old, like it's the beginning of the end, like your chances are you're going to live two more years after that and then die. So it's, it's important that we keep our balance, but nobody's going to go to a balance class. I mean, nobody's going to say, okay, I'm going to give up my workout in lieu of going to a balance class. And so, so, you know, we approach these 10 vital signs and, and, um, 10 wasn't necessarily a magic number, but sort of like what, a, what are the things that we actually do? You know, we, we really sort of put a microscope on like what's working for us. And, you know, we've had access to all the most technical tools out there in the health and fitness space. And, and we sort of boiled down to like, what are we actually doing on a day-to-day basis that we feel like is really working for us? And turns out none of the things we're doing, you know, most of the things we're doing don't require some motivation or willpower. Instead, they're all ways in which we've set up our environment to encourage us to do the things that we're talking about in these vital signs. One of the things that we figured out in the pandemic was that people were, became more comfortable with the idea of a vital sign. That, you know, as a starting place, if I said to you, my blood pressure is 120 over 80, 
you'd be like, hmm, that's not great. That's not bad. But it's a kind of a touchstone where you have a benchmark where you can start to wrap your head around. I need to keep an eye on that. You know, that's just average. That's typical blood pressure. And in the pandemic, we saw people getting comfortable with their SAO2, oxygen saturation, their respiration rate, their temperature. They just started becoming sort of mm-hmm. more comfortable with understanding some insight into their bodies. Mm-hmm. And we really like the objective nature. It's not subjective. Well, I eat this way and it makes me feel good. Does it? You know what I mean? Like, what part of that made you feel good? Is it sustainable? You know, we like subjective wins. When people feel better, they tend to be better in the world. You can buffer a lot if you're cheerful and feel good. But we want that objective data, right? It's observable, measurable, repeatable. This can't just be feel good all the time. And what we found is that this notion of a vital sign gave us an objective measure, but it wasn't, you know, if your blood pressure is, you know, 121 over 81, you're going to die. It just tells us that we need to pay attention. And we started integrating this even to our own movement assessments through our own company. If you take our app test, our movement assessment, our movement test, we have red, yellow, and green. Like, hey, I think you should worry about this. You're, oh, you're killing this. This is a great range that you're, you're finding. So by thinking about specific behaviors germane to the human's robustness and movement behaviors we were able to kind of separate out a couple buckets. One is that there is some mobility range of motion assessments in the contacts and guise of moving in the world that are vital signs that we're trying to expand the role of. Like, what is a vital sign? Well, let's, let's keep that a little further. And then some other behaviors that humans should be able to do. Like, does anyone agree that sleeping is not awesome? So, but let's go ahead and draw a line in it and stop saying just sleep more. You know, just move more. And we can give people some places to start to say, oh, hey, this was a bigger problem for me, or this was a real blind spot. I didn't recognize that I had such an opportunity to improve the functionality of the whole system. I, well, I'll just go for me. I've done the sit-stand test, and I'm, uh, I have to put a hand down on up and down. I can, I can plop down and fall back. Most people can. Yeah, yeah. 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 You got 50% but of that. My wife, she was just like, boom, boom, both directions. I'm like, nice. She's great. Alice is doing great. So I'm motivated. I'm motivated because I've kind of noticed in my own, you know, soccer hobby that like, oh, I can I can run. I can do those things pretty well for my age comparatively. But there's a way in which my flexibility and my ability to kind of move around on the movement ground. Movement choice. Tell me more about movement choice. Well, this, what you're describing is you have fewer movement options. When we wrote Becoming a Supple Leopard, we really just put there are two big ideas in there. One of them is, here's your range of motion. <laughs> Why can't you do that? Yeah. This is what everyone agrees. Every doctor of Chinese medicine, every physical therapist, every orthopedic surgeon says your shoulder should be able to do this. Why can't you do that? And here's what that looks like in movement. And two, what the can you go faster and do the things you love better because we gave you your range of motion back? And oftentimes, because we're not clever, we're clever in a thousand ways, but not a thousand and one ways. And this way, the I'm a nerd, and all I do is think about how people move in their environment you may not see that your missing ankle range of motion or your stiff feet, how that affects your soccer playing. You just don't because it, it hasn't before. Yeah, no, I'm aware of that. I feel that and I feel the stiffness in my ankles and I feel that ability or inability or less ability kind of changing a little bit now that I'm in my early 50s and kind of just feeling that. And so I started just right away. I'm like, okay, here, here's a step. Here's something I can do. So you Im- develop- imagine, imagine you're driving your car and I just put the handbrake on one click. It's not a big deal. 
and then two. Right, clicks. you can still drive with your handbrake. And then you're on a 60, bit. and you're like your ha- your handbrake's halfway on, and that's just stiffness. That's just that's not like injury or that's anything. That's not meta- m- metabolic efficiency. That's not skill. That's just you got stiff, and some of that happens naturally because our tissues change, our physio- internal physiology changes. But what doesn't have to change ever is access to your range of motion. Why would we evolve for two and a half million years and suddenly have a system that suddenly is like, yeah, you can't bring your elbow to your face anymore. You're done. You know what I mean? Like that's called feeding yourself, right? Like your range of motion, being able to feed yourself, walk around, get up and down the environment, that is the thing that makes us the most human and independent of strength, independent of skill, independent of all these other things, just maintaining your range. One of the things that I would say about the sit-stand test and why we like it so much and why we opened the book with that is that it is such a quick way for people to get some immediate feedback about where they are. And, and it's also fun, right? Like the fact that you did it and then you got your wife to do it. And we've heard so many stories about people being like, oh my God, my kid could do this, no problem. And I can't do this at all. And, and, and we share a, the same genetics. So. And it's a predictor of mortality and morbidity really well documented that if you are struggling with this, we can make some inferences about how the rest of your life is going to go. It's amazing. And, and, and the other thing that I liked so much about starting this way, going way back to the beginning when we talked about accessibility, is, yeah. that, is that the practices that we prescribe to work on this um, are things that can be done doing things that we know everybody's already doing, which is watching TV. Um, because you know, every American on average is watching three hours of TV and you know, people listening to this will be like, no, I don't, but everybody is. Um, you only watch two hours of TV. And, and so our, our suggested practices to improve your ability to do the sit stand test are doing the thing that doing the test, which is getting up and down off the floor to begin with, because if you're going to sit on the floor in front of the TV, at some point you have to get up and down off the floor. So you're practicing the thing. Um, and then also it's just this almost, it's like, it's like the next best thing to a passive thing you can do as a human, right? You just literally sit on the floor versus sit on your couch. Um, because what we've found and is that people, will naturally fidget in a seated position. So they'll sit crisscross applesauce. They'll naturally go to 90-90. They'll long sit, right? Because, and part of that is just that we're so detuned from sitting on the floor that none of us actually can sit in a single position for an hour of a whole Netflix show, right? So naturally, we're going to fidget and move into those different positions, which are a great way to continue to open up our hips and work on our hip range of motion. And it's, you know, all just done while you're sitting in front of the television at night. So it's, it's not an add on. It's not something else you have to do. It's not a heroic decision. You don't have to, you know, deploy your willpower. It literally is just like, okay, I really want to watch the show on Netflix. I'm going to sit on the floor instead to do it. So I think that's part of the reason why we started with that because the test itself is fun and revealing and the practices you know, we really want to start by saying, Hey, look, like we're not telling you to blow up your whole life and quit your job so that you can spend your entire day doing health practices. We're not suggesting that at all. We're trying to say, Hey, this is really important piece of information you should know about yourself. And here's some really simple ways you can work on it. And check this out. Number one reason people end up in nursing homes is can't get up and down off the ground by themselves. Hmm. So I can either wait till I can't get up and down off the ground and then go to a get up and down off the ground class when I'm 70 or 80 or I can just watch TV while I'm sitting on the ground. The other thing is, you know, Juliet has pointed out that when you are uh, running a business, you'll set goals for yourself. 
and then you work backwards. So here's our quarter goal. Here's what I want to do in revenue. What are the steps we're going to do to get there? Uh, you might even do that with your retirement. I have to invest this much money so that at this date I have access to these resources. We do that in sports. I want to win the world championship. This is on this day. What needs to happen? There are 10 events. I have to work backwards. Where's my training? No one does that around their own durability and longevity. And no movement. one thinks in that terms. And it's interesting because people only care about two things as they age, like literally two things. Can I move? And, and what, that is, what that really means is, can I do the things I want to do? Um, and that's very diverse, by the way. That's not necessarily mountain biking. That's something we want to be able to do. But that's like, can I play with my grandchild on the floor? You know, so, I mean, we're talking about, so, you know, people want to be able to move in some way, whatever that means to them. And they want to be able to keep their mental acuity. Like those are the two things. And those things of course are connected because, you know, as, as you know, as well as we know, you know, if you're fed and well slept and have moved through your environment and gotten enough movement and can get up and down off the ground, the chances that your mental acuity is going to stay intact also increase. And so it's like, those really are shared things. Nobody ever said, I hope when I'm 70, I can't live independently and my kids take care of me. Nobody ever said that, right? And so we're trying to sort of shift the narrative because I get it, it's hard and a lot of people aren't motivated. You know, if you're 30 listening to this, you're not motivated by like, oh, okay, well, I'm not gonna be able to get up off and down, you know, I getting up and down off the ground when I'm 77. Like that's not necessarily motivating for the 30-year-old. You know, it's hard for us to really care as humans that far in advance. But I, I, I will say, hey, set, a, you know, set some five-year, 10-year, 25-year movement goals for yourself and work backwards and sort of ask yourself, are you doing the things you need to do to be able to, do, to move through the world the way you want to move through the world? The quick backstory there, back to my dad, who was the one who took me on that river trip, and we do tell the story in the book, but we went, we were obviously excited to take our kids on a Grand Canyon trip. It's like the pinnacle of rafting trips. And in 2018, we um, chartered a trip with a bunch of our friends, a bunch of our old river guide friends and brought our kids and we were 16 days on the Grand Canyon. And my dad, who at the time was 76 years old, joined us. And he was by far the oldest person, like the next person close to him in age was like 52 or 53 or something. So he's by far the oldest guy, but there was like no way he was going to miss this trip as like the original outdoorsman. And it's like, a, you know, it's like a bucket list trip for people. And, but I don't think what people realize is a Grand Canyon trip is quite rigorous. And not actually because of the rafting part, although the rapids are big and, you know, it's a full on thing, but you know, you're sleeping outside. It's extremely remote. There are dust storms and sandstorms and you're sleeping on the ground and it rains. And, and then, and then during the day, you're not always just going down the river. You know, one of the beauties of doing a Grand Canyon trip is that you get access to all these side canyons that you can't get, you can't reach from the surface. And so Mm. you can hike up to these beautiful, like blue waterfalls. Have a soup pie? have a soup. I mean, yeah. you can, right. Mm-hmm. You can have these amazing nature experiences in these side canyons that you just can't access unless you're, you're actually floating down the river. And the whole trip, all of my friends who were on the trip, who were all like forties, early fifties at the time, couldn't stop talking about how like, like totally amazed they were that my dad, Warren was able to actually do this trip at all. And by comparison, they said, there's no way my parents could do this. Like no way my parents could do this trip. And I, you know, and it was said enough and often enough. And so I actually asked my dad after the trip, like, dad, what do you think it is? Like, why were you able to do this trip when, you know, the 20 other people we had on this trip, you know, there, none of their parents would physically be able to do this trip in the seventies. Like, what do you think the difference is? And he was like, well, you know, classic scientists, 
she's like, well, probably partly genetics, but he's like, but I really think it's because I've been moving my whole life. And that statement was such an inspiration for me anyway. And writing this book is like, man, we've got to keep moving if we want to keep moving. And that's really what my dad did. He wasn't doing a bunch of formal stuff. And, you know, he just was always moving and keeping an eye on it. You know, as an allegory, I don't even know if we even talked about this. It just occurred to me. One of our friends who was a world champion Highland Games athlete was on there. His name's Matt Vincent. And he came on, and he had been towards ACL college. Remember, he's a world champion. He was a thrower at LSU. He's a big, strong guy. At one point, able to power, like, squat clean 400 pounds, deadlift 700. He was very strong. But his knee had had some trauma, and he didn't have an ACL and sort of didn't respect it very much. And he ended up kind of going down this rabbit hole of surgeries, and he came on the 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 trip and was in, had some bad knee pain. And here he is, a young man, peaks physical specimen, but his world got real small. He had a hard time sitting on the raft, getting up and down off the ground was a thing. He couldn't go on the hikes with us. His whole life was organized now around management of this thing. And he paid a real heavy price for not keeping an eye on some of the things that were out of his control. But as an allegory for all of us, you know, if, if here we have this person who's not heroic, but just keeps moving day to day to day. And simultaneously, we have a, a friend who's like using his body, like is the pinnacle of handsome, suddenly can't do any of the things that the 77 year old can do. And that really is just that juxtaposition is when we lose our capacities, our worlds get very small. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And a lot of this is use it or lose it. And again, I appreciate for many people, that's not that motivational because it, they can't relate to something 20, 30 years down the road. Um, but, but we can sell it this way though. The things in this book make the, the platform for elite performance. I think that's where we lose our minds. We don't see a through narrative or a thread in terms of thinking about what's good for me here, eating fruits and vegetables and sleep and moving. That, it, literally, I'm texting a world-class athlete this morning. The, 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 their season is just about to start, and we're talking about trying to accumulate you know, getting some early light and walk around to help with the jet lag. These are the same practices that we're talking about for being durable as also if you want to be the best in the world, you have to do these things. And I would just add, forget about what's happening in 30 years to us. I mean, I think you can agree because you see it day to day in your office. Like, how are we doing? Yeah. Like, are people in your office less in less pain? Are they less depressed? Are they less overweight? Yeah. Are they... Right, like you just wait around for the, the phone to ring. No one ever calls. The, the, you know, the <laughs> reality is, is like we're not doing well right now, and and yeah. we really believe that a lot of these basic practices can help people feel better now, um, and not just feel better, but be able to move more, expand their movement choice, expand their creativity, expand their ability to have loving, close relationships. You think you're working your ass off? You're not. You're just a maxed yeah, out I, feeling. We, we just think people have like a lot of missing capacity because they, they're, they've they missed the basics here. And, and there's so much more out there in terms of just 
feeling better and being able to live without like nagging pain and injury and, and, you know, and, and all the byproducts of that, right? Like we really care about our relationship and, and, you know, our relationships with our kids and man, those relationships are better when we physically feel better. Yeah. And, and that can't be like understated, right? If we feel good, if we're well rested, we've eaten well, if we've moved enough throughout our day, like we, we see this expansion in our ability to do more and have more connection. And who doesn't want that? No, I agree. I think having the long-term argument and the near-term argument are like good to have together. They're a nice couple because yeah, there's the immediate feeling of like, I feel better. I'm more in my body. I feel more vital. I'm a better person. I'm more ready for life. And knowing that there's these other things down the road that are really problematic if we don't attend not to just having movement, but certain kinds of movement. I think your uh, allegory really illustrated the contrast there. And I think a lot of people are, you know, we, and maybe we talked a little about this last time in the podcast, Kelly, but about the, the kind of false notions or the, the, the mirages of certain health stories that say, this is where we need to be. And I think what I've really gotten between that podcast, the book, and this conversation is you're really redirecting people to more fundamental, essential things that actually matter much, much more than being able to deadlift several hundred pounds. Yeah, I mean, we'd really, and, and again, I said this before, but I mean, we really have found that these practices are what have moved the needle the most for us. And again, we love to deadlift. You know, we we specifically excluded exercise in this book. That was a conscious decision because we didn't, want to get, we didn't want this book to be sort of categorized as like another exercise book because we feel like people have been firehosed with exercise books and diet books and, um, the secret squirrel program. Yeah. And, and we didn't, what we didn't see on the market was a comprehensive book that brought all of these practices together in one. And, and that was what we set out to write. And we actually have, but we couldn't also leave this book without mentioning exercise because we love it. We love to do it. And we're hobbyists. Some kind of resistance training is We're important. hobbyists in it, you know, but we have become so reasonable. You know, if you'd asked us, I don't know, 10, 12 years ago, we'd be like, you need to do high intensity training uh-huh. five days a week. And yeah. then you need to deadlift this. Like if you literally asked us this, that like not that long ago, but you know, our thinking on it is really evolved. And especially because we've become so 50, we've become 50, we've become 50 <laughs> and, and we've also become, we've, we've been working with people for 20 years yeah. and realizing that, you know, people often don't need more that they need to be able to do things that they can do realistically in their life. So we become so much more focused about around the behavior and the habits and how can we actually help people do the things they need to do as opposed to the things. Yeah. And, um, our friend Dave Spitz, I don't know if you've heard of Dave Spitz, but he runs a great Olympic lifting training center called Cal Strength. In the, He's an Olympic in the coach. He's an Olympic coach. And he found himself when he was early on running his business and he had three young kids that he was never exercising, which is actually a common complaint among gym owners. Everybody thinks when you own a gym that all you're going to do is exercise all the time. And in fact, you never exercise. It's this weird phenomenon. <laughs> you know, we, we've told so many friends. We talk about exercise. We're like, hey, just so you know, well, like when you open a CrossFit gym, like that, that'll be the last day you ever exercise just so you know <laughs> for two hours so for two hours but anyway so he found himself in this and he wasn't feeling good in his body and yeah. felt a little overweight and he developed this phrase called never do nothing which we've latched mm. on we love yeah um and because he realized that 
And again, back to this whole idea where we formalize exercise, we've made everybody think, unless you can do something for an hour, you should do nothing. Um, and I think he really sort of rewrote that in his own mind and thought, I'm not actually going to have an actual whole hour very often, yeah. but that doesn't mean I should do nothing. Even if I find myself with 10 minutes, I'm going to swing a kettlebell or do some push-ups or walk on the treadmill or something like I'm going to use these little windows of opportunity. I think that was really impactful for us. Um, and something without, without having a phrase for it, something we've naturally done in our own lives, um, partly because we've set up our environment to be able to do that. But, you know, we've really become so reasonable when it comes to exercise these days. I mean, we are believers now that you should do some. And it should be something you enjoy doing because you will do it. You know, you're a soccer player and I don't think it doesn't seem to me like you, you have to draw upon a bunch of motivation and willpower to go play soccer because you enjoy it. Yeah. That was the thing for me. I found that I used to, I used to trail run before I got into soccer and it was like a late, late adopter, a late hobby that came back to me from childhood in my late thirties. And then I realized chasing the ball, I didn't have to think. I didn't have to tell myself, oh, you have to run, you have to run, you have to run, keep going, keep going. I just, I just played the game, and I got, I got my steps in the way that I really enjoyed, plus the camaraderie, the competition, the movement, the skills development. And you are inadvertently doing something that's so important. My greatest fear is that I'm going to tear my Achilles. And I say that, touch wood, because I see so many middle-aged men particularly who are like, oh yeah, I'm an athlete. And then I'm like, when's the last time you jumped or cut or sprinted or accelerated or done anything? And by the way, you drink a bottle of wine a night and <laughs> you're a stress case and your tissues are crap and you don't have any ankle range of motion. Ba-dink. And that is such a pain in the is ass. Is that the sound an Achilles Ba-dink. makes? And uh, I don't know if you saw me like downstairs, just like we got in here and I was like, oh, a little cold. So I just grabbed the jump rope and I jumped at a hundred jumps. And that is part of my prescription to stay jumping. And we have that in the book, but the cutting loading that you do habitually in soccer is the greatest thing you could possibly do forever. However, coming off the couch and playing soccer cold is a recipe for uh, right, a, and you a also, perfect accident. And also playing soccer as a middle-aged man, you just earned... 100% needing to sit on the floor and noodle on your tissues a little bit at night. You know, so that you, you can have that access. So that you can still keep doing that. Uh-huh. Right, yeah. Doing the thing that brings you joy. I yeah. think I think that's, you know? you know, what we'll say to people, of course, is, yes, some strength training and support and recovery is going to facilitate and protect you from playing soccer, from the, the forces. Someone's going to slide tackle you. It's going to happen. But simultaneously, we're like, let's go ahead and just start the thing first. Then we can have the next conversation. I think we all want this, you know, the super tidy program. It's elite. It's what the elites do, you know, and it's all done and it's so sexy and I can talk about it. And, <laughs> and um, I think that's what we want and what we need are a little bit different. I just saw that cactus over there for the first time. Oh, it's Lisa's shoe. <laughs> I thought it was a cactus. She's wearing a Sorry cactus. Sorry about that. No, it's good. Breaking the wall. No, it's good. Her foot looked like you a blacked out. Like a I was cactus. like, you just blacked out. This is, uh, from here, all I could see was the, I was like, it's a cactus. It's a cactus. I was like, when did the cactus get in there? <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. It's real kills. You know, how about if we did this? Um, Juliet and I ask a converse, uh, this question a lot, and we ask it a lot of our friends. Yeah. What part of the noise do you own? What part of the confusion did we contribute to? What part of the, the chaos and the, the, you know, the muddying of the water is our fault? And 
if fitness is nearly a trillion dollar industry, we'll call it wellness and fitness because those things yeah. are kind of synonymous. As Juliet said earlier, choose something you care about and let's ask how that experiment's going, and particularly in the last 10 years, which is just accelerated. It's crazy. I mean, you can buy like needles on Amazon and Google YouTube how to dry needle yourself. I mean, you can do whatever you want to yourself. It's pretty, you know, some of the art and mystique has been washed away. But we don't think we're doing a very good job. If this is what we're doing, we're telling people you need a Peloton and you have to restrict certain foods and being a, you know, and fast all the time and just be miserable. Well, I can tell you it just hasn't worked very well or it's worked for a very small number of people and we've left everyone else behind. Yeah. So that's really the thing that is the heart of this. And I'm like, well, you might disagree with us or not think we're, but let's go ahead and just look at the data. And the data supports that. Kids tear their ACLs at a freakish rate, much higher than we ever did before. We're seeing depression and substance abuse and loneliness. And so where do you begin to tug at that? that intractable string. Is that the government telling us what to do? Is that the state telling us to know? We think it's the, the functional unit of metric is the household. It's you and the people you live with. That's how we'll reform and support society. Well, we can transform communities at that hyper-local level. Let's go towards this idea here. So you're talking about the functional unit of the household. And, and for me, the kind of missing piece in terms of contribution or what evolution has always taught me is that the evolutionary story is that context matters. So you've talked a lot. You've mentioned a number of times you're doing things in your environment for habit creation. What are like your top two or three things that really have pushed the needle for you that you did in your environment? Let me push back and say yeah. habit creation is not the intention. The intention is to do the right thing consistently that becomes a habit right so we'll, we'll let me tee it up that way and that seems like a, i'm being you know pissant here but it's not because we don't think if you set out to set habits that's a huge willpower thing let me let me give you an example i love cookies love cookies if he i go out them. and buy cookies yeah, yeah. i'll eat all the cookies no one in the house is going to be safe until the cookies are gone that's what happens <laughs> this is a recurring theme a functional yeah, unit of metric a functional unit of cookies for me is a package of cookies, right? That's, what That's a understand. single serving size for Kelly. Single oh, serve. it comes in a bag. That's great. I'll eat all There's the whole one, bag. So one bag so on one what, person. I'm what I do is try not to buy cookies. That's yeah, why yeah. our of daughter course. has a cookie business now, which is yeah. just temptation. But I think she's helping me through exposure therapy because there's always cookies <laughs> in the house. She is. It's I literally am like, cookies are disgusting. But the idea here is... I don't want to have to make that decision. And the habit may be formed over the time of me not having to make the decision of eating cookies. I would say a couple things. I think the first thing is we've set up our li living room to be like a mobility, soft tissue work paradise. We live in mid-century modern home. It's cute. I mean, it like, still it looks doesn't cute. Look it like doesn't it look junky. Like yeah. We live in Eichler. Mm -hmm. It's not junky looking like we have a little basket for our stuff and we keep them in drawers. It's not, it doesn't look gross. We have this gross. beautiful 45 pound um, steel object that our friend made called the boomstick or the pain pill. And it just sits underneath the counter like an object, but really it's designed for heavy, but you, soft if tissue. If you go work. into our living room, you know, you'll see we have a couple of hypervolts plugged in and a vibrating roller and every kind of mobility tool and little baskets. And we have easy ways, little mats where we can sit on the floor and Normatec boots. And we've really set up our whole living room environment to encourage us to sit, both sit on the floor and do some soft tissue work because we also think it has such a lovely down regulatory impact on and, and so helps us sleep as well. So it's like the timing of it we find works the best in the evening. And also, 
also that's when we have time to do it. So we think like setting up our living room or TV room to be like a, a dual purpose environment where you can get some work done while you watch TV. Cause we love TV. I mean, that's the other thing. Like we're, storytelling. We're, yeah. I mean, it's storytelling. Great. Yeah, yeah, it's great. Sure. And so, so I think that's one big, one big thing. Um, you know, we're huge fans of creating a movement rich environment, whatever that means. We're obviously fans of standing desks. So you'll see every desk we have in here is standing, but that doesn't mean you're forced to stand. It just gives you the option to stand when you feel like you can and feel good enough to stand and move around. Um, and then, you know, we just tried to make our house like movement friendly. You know, we have, we huge fans of the garage gym, the home gym, you know, we have balance boards around and, you know, things where you can, you know, we have this, we're huge fans of this thing called the slack block where you it's kind of like an indoor slack line. You can practice your balance and play with in it your and, kitchen. in your kitchen. And, and, awesome. you know, we that have, sounds fun. we have pull up bars. So if you're just, you know, walking in and out of the house through the garage, hang. just hang for a second. Yeah. Um, so we just really try to set up our house in particular so that it was like a move, like really encourage movement without thinking and man did we really see like appreciate that times nine thousand when the pandemic hit right because i mean people were calling us and they're like any chance you guys have like a dumbbell we could buy off you you know and we really had set up our house so that it was just like a movement paradise and so we were like um, fitness so i think those would be kind of the big things that we do you know yeah yeah um Great. And so, yeah, those cool. are the big things. Those are beautiful. Those are great. It's been so great to have you on the show today. It's good to see you again. So good to see you. Thank you for being here. Thank you so much for having us. All cool. the best with the Always. book. Yeah. Pleasure. All the best with the book and moving forward and all we'll the We'll see how it comment. goes. I'll just wrap by saying this is not our first rodeo putting a book out. Yeah. The, I think the degree of difficulty has become much higher in the world to be able to do this. Um, you know, when we, we wrote Supple Leopard 10 years ago and literally we just were like, this is your leg and here's how your leg moves. And people were like, this is incredible, my leg. And now it's a little bit more sophisticated. <laughs> um, but also I think we're really curious to see what happens. I think we have great curiosity. I don't think we were like, this is how, you know, we know what our day-to-day yeah. job is. We believe in this thing immensely because we th- see its capacity for change, comma, we're also like, huh, I wonder what's going to happen. I wonder if we can get anyone to pay attention. Thank you so much for joining the show today. You can support the How Humans Work podcast by sharing the shows with your people, your family, your friends, your community. And you can keep it ad-free by making a donation to our Venmo at HHW underscore pod. I appreciate your support. All music is performed by the incredible Chase Jackson at chasejacksonmusic.com. To learn more about our guest, the show, or Jeffrey's work helping people make peace with our human nature, you can go to howhumanswork.us.